Hello again, everyone, and thank you uh, for being here today. And for those watching online, thank you for joining us. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to John chapter 1 at a most wonderful passage of Scripture. As we think about the child born to us 2,000 years ago, if there was anyone of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who could give us all the details about that birth, we would think it would be John. John was the one that Jesus commissioned while John was hanging on the cross to take care of his mother, Mary, to invite Mary into his home and to look after her. And for the days following, John would have had opportunity after opportunity to ask her questions about the birth. Mary, what was it like when an angel appeared to you? Mary, how did you feel knowing that you were going to give birth to the Most High, the one we've been waiting for? Mary, again, tell me, remind me, how many shepherds showed up that night? Was there anybody after the shepherds that night into the early morning? What was that like? And Mary, when you took them to the temple to be dedicated with Joseph, could you share kind of some of the details there? And then when you had to flee to Egypt, if anybody could tell us about the details of the birth, it would have been John. And yet with John, there is no Mary and Joseph, no manger, no shepherds, no star. But rather, John takes us back into eternity as he begins his gospel account about the life of Jesus. And again, as we heard last week, that before John gets into telling us the story of Jesus, here's the works of Jesus, here's what he said, here's what he did, John begins in his prologue, the first 18 verses, with the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And again, when, you're in, when you encounter a painting in an art gallery that's just so enormous, so beautiful, that you have to step back to really try to take it all in. And so that's what John does in the opening 18 verses. He wants his readers to understand the glory, the majesty, the beauty of this one that he's going to write about and talk about. And again, if Jesus is ho-hum to you, you've got a lesser Jesus. If you think Jesus is irrelevant to you, you've got a man-made wrong Jesus, you don't have the historical one. And so today, as we step back and look at the person of Jesus, we're going to see that he is God became man. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the incarnation, uh, the doctrine of the enfleshing of God, that he became a human being. And it is the most mind-boggling um, profound subject in all the universe. That, that God who created all things, and when we look, continue in science today, to look through microscopes and telescopes, we're just more and more astounded at the, at the design, at the grandeur, at all, all of those things, that, that the one that created all things would enter his creation and become one of us. It really is God wearing sandals. It, I said uh, last week we had three ounce brains. Okay, I was just referring to myself and a few others, but with our three pound brains, with all 86 billion neurons firing at the same time, transmitting you know, information, we still cannot fathom this reality 
that God became one of us. C.S. Lewis refers to it as the grand miracle. He writes, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. It's really the grand miracle, but it's also the grand doctrine. There is no death on a cross and resurrection without Jesus, the Son of God, becoming man. We cannot enter the heavenly realms of a holy God, but he enters into the human realms so that we can understand him and so that he can act on our behalf. So it's the grand miracle and it's the grand doctrine. J.I. Packer says this about the incarnation. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. God became man. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look again at verse uh, 1 of chapter 1, where John, as he begins the life of Jesus, says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John begins not by calling Jesus Jesus, but referring to Jesus as the Word. So why does he refer to him uh, as the Word? Again, in the Greek, the word is logos. And in the time of John, logos meant the reality, the principle, the reason, the philosophy, the impersonal power behind all that is. The people would go around scratching their heads, trying to figure out the meaning of life. Why am I here? Why am I on this planet? What are we doing? And they will say, it's all connected to some reason, some principle. And John is saying, I want to tell you about that reason, that principle. Actually, it's not simply a principle. It's a person. And he's going to write to them about this person, this person to be worshipped and embraced. And he talks about Jesus as the one who is preexistent. Notice in the beginning, he's referring his readers back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, when the heavens and the earth were created, Jesus was already there. He's pre-incarnate. He's internal. He was, he was there. In the beginning was Jesus, the Word. And then he also talks about Jesus being coexistent. And the Word was with God. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Part of the triune God. Jesus is coexistent. And then Jesus is self-existent. And the Word, Jesus, was God. Mind-boggling, try to get our minds around that. So John says, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. He's the Word. He's God. And now then, as we go down to verse 14... He says this, the word became flesh. God took on flesh, to which we respond, that's impossible. How can that be? John, are you telling us that God, who has no beginning and no end, became one of us? How can that be? I mean, first, let's try to walk through this. Jesus has a divine nature and also a human nature. He's, he's divine and yet he's human. And that's what John is telling us. 
But notice what he says, that the word became flesh, that Jesus is always, has always been God. And then he took on, something was added, his humanity. So when we think of the incarnation, it's not subtraction, but rather addition. Jesus did not lay aside his deity when he took on his humanity. As the early church said over and over again, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Fully God, fully man. And John, to emphasize the point of his humanity, Jesus' humanity, uses a word uh, for flesh um, that encompasses all of our human experience. He didn't use a word for man or use a word for body, but flesh, encompassing all that we are. In other words, John wants his readers to know that Jesus in his humanity didn't just have a body, but he had a body, he had a mind, he had a will, he had emotions. And we see this uh, through the Gospels, that Jesus was born, he grew, he got hungry, he got thirsty, he got physically weak, he slept, he died. We see in the Gospels that Jesus displayed different human emotions. As John Calvin summed it up, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. Uh, he had both a human mind and a divine mind, right? He knew all things as God, but he didn't know all things as man. Try to figure that one out. Very, it's a paradox. He had a will, both a divine will and a human will. We see that in the Gospels. So what do we do with that? How can that be? Though he was born of Mary, he was the creator of all things. Though he grew in stature and wisdom, he is omniscient. Though he went to sleep on a boat, he commanded the wind and the waves to be still. Though he got hungry, he is the bread of life. Though he got thirsty, he is the living water. Though he wept at the, the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Though he was troubled and overwhelmed in the garden, he is the prince of peace. Charles Spurgeon said that whenever he would read scripture and study scripture, and he came to a mystery that he couldn't resolve, he built an altar there and worshiped. And that's the same thing with you and me. When we try to put this together and understand fully God, fully man at the same time, we don't understand it. It's a mystery. It's the grand mystery. But we worship. We worship. The one who wore sandals, the one who... In ancient times, you would take on the trade of your father, so we can safely assume that Jesus was a carpenter. The one who was going throughout Galilee, probably in it, through his teen years, young adult years, hanging doors and laying floors, was the same one who in eternity past was hanging the stars and laying out the galaxies, all 200 billion of them. It's mind-boggling. You worship. And we, uh, Woodside, we need to hold those two in tension. We don't understand it. And what's happened, if you look at church history, that it's so mind-boggling that people have either minimized or denied one of those two natures. So at the time of John, when he wrote this, um, they denied, people were denying that Jesus was a man. They denied his humanity. We believe Jesus was God, but he wasn't a man. He just appeared as a man. And so John is saying, no, 
flesh. God became flesh. He became one of us. He was a human. And then now in our day, before 2,000 years later, we struggle with his divinity. Jesus of Nazareth, we know he existed in human history, but, but he was just a man. There's no way he was God. How could it be God and man? It's the doctrine of the incarnation, and it causes us to worship. So John says, the word, that's who I'm talking to you about, God, he became one of us. And then he continues in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Made his dwelling, the word there literally means tabernacled. God tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. John is taking us back and he's saying to his readers, do you remember when God led the Israelites out of Egypt and he revealed himself to them? Do you remember that they built a portable sanctuary called the temple and God, who is a spirit, would come down into the temple as light? It was called his Shekinah glory. Shekinah means to reside or dwell. That God would dwell in the temple in his Shekinah glory. And John is saying, do you remember that temple, that tabernacle? It was a tabernacle and then the temple. Do you remember that tabernacle? He actually came. He was the tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. God's glory was right here. And then he goes on to say, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory. Again, the word glory in Hebrew is kavod. It means heavy. It also means beauty, splendor. Um, that's why in the Greek it's translated gloria, that, that we've seen the beauty of Jesus, the splendor of Jesus, but we've seen the weight of Jesus. Now, John isn't simply referring to the transfiguration. As you read through the Gospels, Matthew and Luke talk about this time when Jesus was transfigured, where they got a glimpse of his deity. When Jesus walked for 33 years on the earth, people saw a human, a man, but his deity was veiled for the most part. Once in a while, there was a little glimpse. He would do a miracle. He's got to be more than a man. At the transfiguration, it was a longer time, and Peter, James, and John saw more of the glory of God. But that's not really what John is simply referring to, because he doesn't talk about the transfiguration. He's talking about seeing the life of Jesus, the weight of Jesus. Glory is the visible manifestation of the attributes and character and perfections of God. So John is saying, we saw his infinite love. We saw his infinite kindness. We saw the infinite justice. We saw his infinite power. We saw his weight, his glory. And notice he says this as well. Who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now why does he bring that up? He came full of grace and truth. Because earlier in the story, he wanted to take them back. Do you remember when God led the Israelites out, actually before that with Abraham, the God who revealed himself to us? But do you remember when, when Moses led the people out of, of Israel, out of Egypt and Moses wanted to know more of who God was? And so in Exodus 33 and then into the 34, he's like, God, who are you? Can I see your glory? And do you remember that God said to Moses, here's who I am? I'm the Lord who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 
I hate to use a cheesy analogy, okay? Might have said this before, but bear with me. If God had a Facebook page, and underneath where you put, you know, tell me something about yourself, he would put, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And John, what he's doing here, again, excuse the analogy, it's the best I got, John is uploading a picture of Jesus onto the Facebook page. There he is, the one full of grace, the one full of faithfulness. He's true, he's trustworthy. So John is saying, we've seen him in person, the one that revealed himself to people hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I want to ask you this morning, today, Jesus impacted John's life. He's impacted millions, the lives of millions of people. Has he impacted your life? Have you seen his glory? Do you understand who Jesus is? He's God become man. And if you are investigating Christianity and you say, well, how do I see the glory of God? First, you can look around. Christ has displayed his glory in his creation. But also, you can look in the Bible, the written word, because the written word points to the living word. As you read about Jesus, you read who God is like, what God is like, and you see his weight, his beauty, his richness, his glory. So John says, we've seen his glory. He then continues in this prologue, verse 15. John, referring to John the Baptist, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So why does he bring up John the Baptist? Because in Jewish courts in that day, you needed two or three witnesses. So John, as he's writing to his readers, he's saying, I want to remind you of another witness years ago, John the Baptist, who said that he was before Jesus. He was born before Jesus, but yet Jesus was greater than him, surpassed him because Jesus was before him. John the Baptist knew about the eternality of Jesus. He's another witness. And then he continues, verses 16 and 17. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then John goes on to say this. We not only saw his glory, but out of his fullness, because in Christ, the Godhead dwells fully, Jesus is not half God, half man. He's fully God, fully man. Out of his fullness, we have received grace. But notice, we've all received grace in place of grace, or in top of grace, or instead of grace. John has a picture here, is we received God's grace, and then we've received more of it, and more of it, it's like Jesus is the Niagara Falls of grace. He's just like that endless wave that keeps coming. His goodness keeps coming. And again, grace, glory you think of weight. Grace you think of unmerited favor, getting something you don't deserve. But it's even more than that. It's ongoing unmerited favor. It's lavish. It's God's inexhaustible supply of goodness. And John is saying, we received what we didn't deserve. We received salvation of our sins. We received all of his good 
gifts. And then he talks about the law and Moses. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why does he bring up the law and Moses? Again, he wants to take us back to before Jesus came. And he says, remember when Moses was there, the law was given to him on Mount Sinai. Do you remember that was God's grace revealing to us how we should live, that the moral law is connected to God's character. This is how you're to live. But he's reminding them the law is not an end in itself because we can't keep the law. We've all broken the law. We're all under the penalty of the law. But Jesus, full of grace and truth, he's delivered us from that law. And then he concludes. Oh, and then I ask this question. Have you received his grace? That outside of Jesus, we're all under the law. We all deserve the punishment for our sins. But Jesus, because of his inexhaustible supply of goodness, did something. He died on the cross so we could be forgiven and, and we would be delivered from the law. We live in a, just a reminder, in society today, people don't need to praise God for his grace because they don't need his grace because we're all good people. John says that's not true. Then we conclude in verse 18, John concludes, or he summarizes his prologue with these words, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. No one has ever seen God. No one will ever see God, his, his inner essence, his inner being. He's, he's, he's infinite. We're finite. We can't. He created the sun. If you know anything about the sun, you get a little cl too close to the sun, you're going to be incinerated in a millisecond. Same thing with, with God. We, we can't. We just break down. He's infinite. But this invisible God, as Paul says, has been made visible. That when we see Jesus, we are seeing God in the flesh. We are looking at the face of God the incarnation, the enfleshing of God is a doctrine, is a miracle we can't fully comprehend. But what it does, it doesn't lead to confusion, but it leads to worship. I'd like to suggest three implications of the incarnation. First, you worship him. The more you understand the incarnation, the more it will drive you to worship him. In fact, you were made to worship Christ. You can worship other things, but you'll never be fully satisfied because you were made for Christ to adore him, to see his glory, to rejoice in his grace to you. That you worship him not uh, first because he came to identify with you. He became someone so that he could get you. Jesus experienced what we experienced. Jesus knew pain and suffering. If you're here today and life is hard, and you've asked yourself the question, does anybody really, really know what I'm going through and how I feel? Well, the answer is some people, some of us, can know to some degree, and we as, as a loving church family are to be putting, uh, putting ourselves in each other's shoes, to be empathetic towards one another, to pray for one another, care for one another, be there for one another. But the reality is no one will ever fully get you except Jesus. He came. He knew pain and suffering. He's acquainted with sorrow. 
You'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. Right now, Jesus is in you through his Holy Spirit. He is near. He's not in a distant galaxy. He knows every tear you cry. He knows the pain, and he alone can describe it. So we celebrate, we worship that he came to identify with us. But we also worship that he came to save us. Right? He didn't come down thinking, you know, wouldn't it be nice to pop down and have a little fun on earth? He came down to die on a cross for us. That the incarnation highlights our need for divine rescue. None of us can save ourselves. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps. I'm going to be a good person for God. We can't. Somebody had to do something for us. And it's interesting, John doesn't talk about this little baby in the manger, doesn't talk about Jesus as a toddler. Did he have some terrible twos? Doesn't talk about Jesus teething or burping. By the way, he cried in the manger, no crying he makes. I wish they'd change that. It's been 400 years now, but I guess they're going to... But he was, he was a baby. He was a toddler. Didn't talk. John didn't talk about Jesus being an awkward teenager. Did he have pimples? Was he nervous at times? But what John did talk about was the one who was born in a manger years later was on a cross, bleeding and beaten for you and for me. He came to us, but he also came for us. If you wonder if God loves you, look at the cross and you worship. Second implication, you seek to reflect him. Jesus not only came to identify with us and to save us, but to reveal God to us, to show us how we are to live. We're made in the image of God. And so when Jesus comes into your life, when you uh, begin a relationship with him as he works, you want to represent, reflect Jesus to, to people. You want them to see Jesus in your life. Now, you're not perfect, but that's your trajectory. That's, that's your focus. And what does it mean to be like Jesus? What's spiritual maturity? Two things. One, you wear sandals, even in the snow. And number two, you work on your Galilean accent. You want to be spiritually mature? Be like Jesus. No, that's not at all, right? You want to be full of grace and truth. In a culture where we find it seems like less kindness, less patience, less everything, your focus is on Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Let me love this lost and dying world. And just a note, as we, you know, we're still in this COVID uh, pandemic and it just seems to go on and we're all frustrated and discouraged and tired and fill in the blanks. But I want to challenge those of you that if you are living in fear or you are living in anger, neither of those things reflect Jesus. And I'm challenging you to reach out to someone and to talk and, and to, to, to rewrite your narrative, your script, because you need to reflect Jesus. And the more you get to know him, the more he'll help you with your fears and he'll help you with your anger. Jesus is our focus. We seek to reflect him. And then the third implication as you anticipate seeing him. The incarnation reminds us that God keeps his promises, right? Back to the first man and the first woman, they waited hundreds of years at the time of Jesus for this Messiah to come, the one that we're told would be born uh, of a woman, the offspring of a woman, and this one coming would strike the head of the evil one. 
And sure enough, God kept that promise. But God has also made another promise that that same one is coming a second time and we're living between those two advents, this first advent and his second advent. And so we anticipate seeing Jesus. Two things in your future. Okay, if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we encourage you, we challenge you today to seek him and to give your life to him. But if you are a follower of Jesus, here's two things in your future. Number one, you will see Jesus. You will see God face to face. How mind-boggling is that? When Jesus died and ascended into heaven, he didn't revert back to intangibility. Oh, where'd he go? He's a spirit. In the same way you saw him go, he's coming again. And he left us with a body that Jesus is the forever God-man, fully God, fully man. Those two natures joined in one. In other words, Jesus didn't pop down for 33 years and said, I'm going to wear a costume. I'll put on humanity. And Jesus didn't simply make a cameo. Hey, you know, short little part I'm playing here. Jesus is forever joined as the God-man, and we will one day see him John writes about this in his first letter. Let me just share what he said. And again, in 1 John, um, John is talking to people. There was something called docetism where people didn't believe that Jesus was fully man. And John is saying in this first letter, we saw him, we touched him, um, we heard him. He's the one we're describing to you so that you can have a relationship with him. And then he goes on to say this in 1 John 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a child of God, and God, that's because of God's not just love for you, his great love for you. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But... We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We know. Friends, do you know that today? You need to be reminded of it today. That when he appears, John is an old man, saying Jesus is coming again. When he appears the second time, we will be like him. And Paul talks about this in Philippians 3 as well, where he says, our citizenship is in heaven And from there, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. That when Christ comes again, your soul, your spirit, your immaterial will be joined back with the material, and you will have, like Jesus, a resurrected, glorified body. No more body shaming, no more body issues. You will have a perfect human body. But that's not all that John says. When he appears, and we need to know this, we'll be like him. And then he says, for we shall see him as he is. How many sleeps till Christmas? What is it, four or five? Okay. How about instead of sleeps till Christmas, sleeps until you die, that every single night you're reminding yourself, I'm going to see God. You worship. 
Second thing in your future, you not only are going to see God, but you're going to be a recipient of his inexhaustible supply of goodness for all eternity. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, speaking of God's grace. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love, there it is again, great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We all deserve punishment for our sins, but because of this child coming to us, because of God's goodness to us, he did something for us, and if we believe we'll have our sins forgiven and life in his name. We were dead, but now we're alive. But then John, Paul goes on to say this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Again, notice that's past tense. When you go to bed, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to bed, I hope I go to heaven. You're already there. You're already raised up. You're already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And then John, Paul says this, in order that in the coming ages, we're in the present age now, but there's coming in an eternal age, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable, the immeasurable, the exceeding, the boundless riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, that forever and ever you will be on display in heaven as an evidence of God's grace. That you are saved and you are with God gives evidence. So people are going to walk up to you in heaven and saying, what are you doing here? You didn't deserve to be here. <laughs> but you can say to that person, what are you doing here? You don't deserve to be here. Every single person in the presence of God will be there because of his grace. Not one of us can earn it. And when you see his glory, when you receive his grace, you worship, you seek to reflect him, and you long and you anticipate the day that the word that became flesh will be visible to you. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. May we give him glory.